Amen. I wanted to just touch on a couple things. And I don't know how the Lord may lead here, but it's so exciting what God is doing. I am aware of more open doors right now than we have ever had in our history. And I am excited about more connections with more serious Christians and fellow pilgrims. I'm excited about more of those connections than I've ever been aware of in the past. And yet, at the same time, the slander and the persecution and the hate continues. And I remember talking to someone, uh, it may have been a year and a half ago or so, who was once here and later uh, developed some family issues and felt to separate and, and having separated, developed some serious case of bitterness. And then after about 20 years, they asked for this meeting out of the blue. My wife and I saw them in a restaurant in town, and they asked for a meeting out of the blue. And so I got with them, and I remember sitting down, sitting across the table from them at this cafe, and hearing some of their stories, and feeling aghast, feeling like, how could they possibly believe themselves? They didn't have an audience besides me, so I don't think that they were trying to simply tell lies that they didn't believe to strangers. They were speaking to me, someone who lives here, grew up here, and they were telling these remarkable tales. And I remember being astonished that as I heard these bizarre accounts, I looked in their eyes and I realized that they believed themselves. And that was perhaps the most scary thing. And I appealed to them and I said, you know, I was there, this didn't happen. This is straight up bizarre. And there's not a person who doesn't have an ax to grind or some bitterness background who would, who would agree with you. That's ludicrous. There was no margin of, of error here. It, it was totally black and white silly. And I don't want to get into it because it's not worth repeating. And they said, oh no, I, I remember, I was there. And I said, well, can I give you an alternative that you left in a lot of pain and over the time that's elapsed, you've allowed that pain to create a narrative, a narrative that has little resemblance to reality. And you have bought into a storyline that is just pure fiction. And their response was something like, well, you know, I think that's possible. And I have not made contact with this person since, and I don't have a whole lot of hope that the relationship stands much chance. But afterwards, I reflected on the passage to the Thessalonians where Paul tells about the perilous times that are coming and how he says that God will give people over to a debased mind to believe a lie and be damned. And for the first time in my life, after this conversation, the words really struck me where he says that God will release them to believe the lie. 
In ordinary circumstances, we tell lies, but we do not believe the lies we tell. We try to get other people to believe things that we internally know are false for the purposes of manipulating them or protecting ourselves or who cares what. But Paul tells of a judgment that comes on God's backslide, on people who were once followers of Christ. A judgment comes on them, and the judgment is they believe their lies. That's a scary thing, and that's what I encountered in this conversation. I encountered people saying things that are provably false. You could go and pull up the transcript or the recording of the meeting they were referring to and show to the whole world that it never happened. But they have so insulated themselves in the certainty of their perspective and their narrative, and they've told their story so many times that they believe themselves, even in telling the most bizarre things. I believe through Jeremiah, the Lord describes the judgment that He will give to the people when He says, He will turn them over to their own fancies. One rendering is their own vain pursuits or their own imaginations. You know, Jonah, of course, makes that famous statement where he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And in various translations, it is rendered differently. One translation says, those who cling to vain imaginations forsake their own mercy. And you've got this picture of someone just with white-knuckled, tenacious certainty of their own vain imaginations. And in that certainty, they are forsaking a mercy, a grace that God would make available to them. And I read these passages in John, and I just want to read a couple of them now. It's in John 16, verse 18. And he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. It's as if he's trying to tell them, you're going to face hatred. I told this man at the cafe that day, at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, you've taught us something. If it weren't for you and your slander, we wouldn't know what it meant to be hated. But you have taught us what it means to be hated and lied about for Jesus' sake. And he was extremely offended and put off by that. He said, I don't hate you. Failing to see that the lies he was telling represented the very epitome and essence of hatred. To tell things to others that invokes loathing and disgust and shock and fear, that is the very definition of hatred. So Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. And I want to remember that as we encounter some of what we have encountered. We couldn't even lay my dad in the ground before the hatred and the blasphemy and the slander and the vitriol was spewing forth all over the internet. But we need to remember that we're not the first to be hated. We're not the first to be lied about. We're not the first to hear a crowd gritting their teeth, gnashing their teeth, and screaming for blood. 
They did that to Jesus. And then he says in the next verse, verse 19 of, of John 15 here. I said 16, but it's John 15. I'll get into 16 here in a second. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. So then he tells them why they're hated. And he says, you're hated because you don't fit in. The way they hate us is by developing these catchphrases or these trigger terms where they just have to say a little thing and everybody understands. And what do they understand? Do they understand that we have violated Scripture? No. Do they understand that, that we have somehow denied the truth? No. No. What do they understand? They understand that we don't belong to the world, that there are certain norms and standards that we have disobeyed. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. The world hates us because we're different. If we would just look the same and talk the same and preach the same and disciple the same, if we would just sing the same and live the same, if we would just not be different, the world wouldn't hate us. Why does the world hate when Christians are different? Because only separation can release the kind of protection that Balaam encountered when he attempted to curse God's people but could not. And he said, I cannot curse them. For I see a people who do not mix themselves among the nations. I see a people set apart. The prince of this world knows the blessing that comes to those who will be different. He knows the scripture where the Lord says, be separate and I'll be your father. He knows the scripture where it says, whoever loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. And he knows how powerful that love is that God would put inside of His people. And He wants to adulterate our pure union with Christ so that we will no longer be powerful in His love. We will no longer be secure with Him as our Father and we as His sons and daughters. The prince of this world knows the words of James when he says, whoever seeks to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he knows that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But he wants us to be an enemy of God. He wants the Lord to withdraw His presence from us, to remove His glory from us. He wants the world to see in us the same thing they see in all the adulterated church. And so he wants us to fit in. He wants us to be indistinguishable. He knows that distinction denotes that possibility where God could be our Father and we could be His sons and daughters. Be separate and I'll be your Father. So Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I have chosen you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And you wonder why the church is so in lockstep with the world and indistinguishable from the world and its fashions and its patterns and its morals and everything about the world because they don't want to be hated. Jesus tells us right here, you don't like being hated? Fit in. Fit in. But James says, in doing so, you'll make yourself God's enemy. And John says, the love of the Father will immediately depart from you. 
And that's what the devil wants, and that's why he inspires it. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. And it's phenomenal to me that he uses persecution as a sign of greatness here. Doesn't that hit you? He says, you're going to get persecuted. And if they persecuted the master, trust me, they're going to beat up on the slaves. But he uses it to say they're not greater. You're not better than the master. If the master partook of persecution, you're going to get to partake of the same, just to a lesser degree. But he says, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. Amen. If I had not come and spoken, and if those who hate us had not experienced and tasted and seen the power of God, the reality of His presence in this place, they would be guiltless of their sin. But because they did taste and see, because they did know, they're guilty. Amen. As I was going through some of my dad's old letters, I came across a letter from a man I will leave unnamed. But he is a man who hates us viciously. He is a man who persecutes us and lies about us and does all in his power to stop people from loving us, showing all the ways that we're different from the church world, or rather the worldly church. But this is a letter he sent my dad in the latter years before he left us, and it struck me as a warning. This man who now hates us wrote and said, I felt the conviction, this is a letter to Brother Blair that he wrote, I felt the conviction of that clear word of God that you ministered on your birthday. I opened my heart to the ministry and it has already borne good fruit in me and my family. I felt the Lord convicting me to the core this past Sunday and I felt my whole being adjusting to see clearly. I felt that conviction now for almost 25 years, and I never want the Word of God to stop coming with the precision that has helped me to see who I really am. I love the boundaries He has given for me and the people He has put me in relationship with more than ever. I honor His authority more than ever. I vow to enter into this year of travail. I firmly resolve to look into the perfect law of liberty and continue in it and not be a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. I love you. And then he signs his name. And I thought, well, now, Lord, that person has placed themselves under your judgment because they saw so clearly what their course to victory was and they vowed unsolicited they wrote a letter saying I love this more than ever before and I vow I firmly resolve to continue to look into the perfect law of liberty and not be a forgetful hearer 
These are some of the last words they sent my dad before they betrayed and went their way and began to hate and slander. And tell me that God did not give them every chance. But you see, when the Lord shows us the truth about ourselves, everything in us hates that truth. Everything in us wants to see it differently than what it really is. So there's got to be an integrity and a commitment and an awe for God's presence that enables us to continue to look firmly in that perfect law that liberates us, that sets us free. If we turn away, we're going to return to the lies. We're going to return to the, the narrative that casts us in a favorable light and makes everyone else the villain and us the victim. But God help us. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. If that brother had not seen so clearly what his problem was and seen so clearly what the liberating truth would do, he would have no sin. But he is, he is under sin because of how clearly he saw. And then he goes on and he says, but they have done this to fulfill the word that was written in their law that says, they hated me without cause. In John 7 verse 19, Jesus says, you're trying to kill me. And the very people who would later crucify him, they said, why do you say we're trying to kill you? You must have a demon. They tried to make him seem paranoid. They tried to make him seem terrified and fearful as if they weren't as vicious as they are. They wanted to appear reasonable and palatable and normal. They wanted to hide that burning hatred that simmered beneath the surface. But he said, they have fulfilled the scripture which says, they have hated me without cause. But then he goes on, he says, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So he's got this construct where he's described all the hatred that he has received and all the hatred that his people are going to receive. And then he says that there will be someone who comes to his defense. He says there will be one who rises to the witness stand and speaks a testimony in answer to all the accusations, the murderous hatred and lies. And who will stand in that witness? Who will rise up to the witness stand and speak on behalf of Jesus and His people? Will it be the masses? No, they screamed, crucify Him. Will it be the experts? No, they washed their hands and ignored a dream of warning. Will it be the, the Roman soldiers? No, they felt more guilt than the religious, but not enough to take Him down from the cross. No, the Holy Spirit, for those who have an ear to hear and ever find themselves with God's people on trial, they should listen for the voice of the Spirit. That Spirit of truth. Jesus says, when the advocate comes, and it's translated as helper here, but the word in the Greek is parakletos. And it was a word that described defense attorney. So let me read this to you. Everything he's been saying is, you're going to be hated because I was hated. He says, they have done this to fulfill 
the word of their law that says they hated me without cause. When my defense attorney comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. He says, there is going to be a witness of the Spirit that the godly are going to sense. And there is going to be a witness of truth that the honest are going to give. Then he says, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. He indicates that the hatred and the lies would make some people stumble. But if they know it's coming, they will be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from their synagogues. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Now here we have another insight into who's doing this. Romans are not trying to please God. Religious, zealous religious people are the ones trying to please God. And he says, an hour is coming when everyone who kills you will think they're doing God a service. I tell you right now, not to scare you, but so that you will be kept from stumbling. There is a large crowd, or at least a vocal minority out there, who firmly believe it is their God-given duty to kill the witness of this community. They believe if they could silence us, if they could destroy us, if they could wipe us off the map as a corporate entity, they would have done God a service. But there's two other witnesses that counters. Those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and can speak from their firsthand experience. Not those who walked away and flunked out, but those who remained faithful. That's one witness. And the other is the voice of the Spirit that testifies concerning the truth. And those who have an ear for God will be able to pick up those testimonies above the clamor of the crowd, above the shrieks of crucify Him, above the confusing lies, the myriad barrage of slander that is coming our way. Then he says again, these things they will do because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. So he says, at the very beginning, I didn't tell you how hard it was going to be, because I was there to hold your hand. I was with you. But now I'm going away, and I need you to know it's going to get tough. It's going to get rough from time to time. But you're going to have the parakletos. Amen. And you're going to have the faithful witness of faithful men. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And we can all think of those scriptures that say, when you are persecuted and slandered, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For that's how they've treated all of God's righteous people throughout history. Amen. And we also think of the passage where he says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that's how they spoke about the false prophets, those who were of the world and belonged to the world and belonged to the crowd, amen, the mob of accusers. Lord, help me to have the grace to embrace the hatred, the slander, and the murder of the mob in order to have 
on my side the defense of the Holy Spirit, the witness of faithful men, and the assurance that the Father is with me so long as I remain separate from that world that only loves its own. Amen. I don't want the love of the world. That may be sweet in the moment, but it's bitter in the end. I want the love of the Father. Amen. Lord, take out of me the love of the world. Take out of me the need to be accepted, the need to be understood, the need to be praised. Amen. Take that out of me, Lord. Amen. I want your approval. I want to feel the witness of your Spirit. And when I die, I don't want the world to tell how great I was and how I fit in and belong to their number. I want to hear just one voice say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen. That's, that's what Brother Blair heard, I firmly believe, as he crossed the portal of this life to the next. He heard the Lord say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. He knew what it was to be hated, and I saw it hurt him. I saw it reduce him to tears from time to time. In fact, just the week before he died, he laid on his bed and with tears said, I don't understand it. I don't understand why they hate us. Amen. It's hard. Amen. But the ultimate reason why they hate us is because those who need no other praise but God, they're a danger and a threat to that kingdom. Amen. They hate us because they love that world. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. We don't hate them. We don't hate them. We pray for them and we love them. And we would give them our right arm if it would save them from that snare that they found themselves in. Amen. Lord, help us to be faithful. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.